Hi and welcome to Web3 for Gen Z, where I interview Web3 leaders about the experiences building the internet of the future and their advice for Gen Z. I'm your host Aryan Basin, and my guest for this week is Alex Schiff. Alex is the Chief Strategy Officer at Offshift, which is an ecosystem pioneering what Offshift calls PriFi or Private Decentralized Finance. What's unique about Offshift is that it adds privacy and anonymity to your regular DeFi applications built on Ethereum. Alex and I talk about privacy and data as it relates to Web3, as well as ways to communicate technical concepts like PriFi and zero-knowledge proofs to broader audiences. You can follow Alex on Twitter at AlexShipXFT, that's ship with two Ps, and learn more about Offshift at www.offshift.io. Without further ado, here's Alex Ship. Hey, Alex. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing well, happy to be here. I'm glad to have you here. I think today's episode is going to be super interesting. Would you mind sharing to our listeners your background and what you're working on right now? Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a finance background, which means I studied finance, uh, bachelor's degree, you know, in, in undergrad. I got into crypto from sort of by getting into Bitcoin from a monetary angle, uh, learning a little bit about the monetary system, central banking, and, and it really didn't resonate with me too much. And so I sort of explored Bitcoin and, and to me, it felt like Ethereum and then, you know, sort of on-chain privacy felt like the logical sort of next steps in that progression. So I sort of found myself in the last couple of years now been at uh, Offshift, which is a project that is pioneering PriFi or private decentralized finance on Ethereum on layer one. So that's sort of bringing privacy to the most decentralized environment that exists in the crypto space for smart contracts and, and decentralized applications. Um, and so that's sort of where I am now. And, and I'm happy to elaborate on Offshift as well. Yeah, I, I want to dive into private decentralized finance. And that's going to form, I think, the bulk of our conversation today. But before we even jump into Offshift, could you just set up some context for us on central banking and credit systems? And let's just forget DeFi for now and talk about how credit was being managed way before crypto was coming in. And if there were any specific problems related to this sort of centralized way of handling credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to. Um, you know, I actually gave a big talk about this at SCC, which is a big Ethereum, probably the biggest Ethereum event in Europe. It's in Paris, and that was in July 2021. Um, and sort of gave some some pretty deep historical context, you know, surrounding credit issuance. And there's sort of this idea in the Bitcoin community that we just need sound money, which is money that can't be rehypothecated, can't be inflated, you know, very much unlike the fiat currencies we have today. And I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Because if you look at the history of, for example, gold, which was, in my opinion, has a lot of really strong qualities as a sound money, it wasn't exploited as being not scarce enough. It was just replaced by a system of really unsound credit, which is that inevitably any money in the world, anything that serves as money, whether it's paper, gold, or any other substance or anything else, is that it has some inherent qualities. And we know about these and we talk about these, you know, whether it's divisibility or portability or fungibility, scarcity, these are all really important qualities. And some of them take away from, inherently take away from its ability to be transacted in sort of a superlative cheap manner or in a fully efficient, fully convenient manner. And so at some point that manifests in the form of transaction costs, whether it's shipping gold around or protecting the gold, um, or in the case of Bitcoin, it manifests in, you know, all this hash power and then the transaction fees that people, you know, they're, they're not as low as it would be to just use a centralized system like Visa. And so 
Well, what sort of happens inevitably is that some institutions or businesses or organizations sort of pop up that offer to hold your money for you. In the case of gold, you know, that happened around the 20th century, especially like the turn of the 20th century. A lot of these banks popping up that offered to hold the gold and they would issue a receipt, a piece of paper that says how much gold you have. The paper is a lot easier to transact. It's so much more efficient. It's so much easier to keep track of. It's so much more divisible because you just write a different number on it. So there's so many ways in which this unit, which really that term is credit, that credit can be used to make a much more efficient economy, much more efficient transactions. And reducing friction in transaction always contributes to economic growth and, and wealth creation, things like this. The challenge is that paper, the credit isn't scarce the way money is. And whatever society, whatever an economy, whatever a group of people or a group of an economic agents select to be money inherently has these qualities. It's really a distributed process and it's a beautiful thing the way money emerges in an economy. And so when you have someone that can just create these units, these units of credit out of thin air, as they start to become trusted, as people redeem the units for money, the credit and the money are going back and forth the credit issuer starts to realize that it can make a little bit more of this credit and it can make, earn interest on it, can do a lot of things with it. And so inevitably, these things turn into what we call Ponzi schemes. We call them pyramid schemes. We call them just scams. We call them all sorts of things. But where there are more units outstanding, more of the credit than the actual money that exists underneath it. And so eventually there's a run on the bank, as we say traditionally, where people take the credit to the bank and they say, can I have my money? And the bank says, we actually don't have it. We have none left. <laughs> And, you know, we see this happening recently in China. We see it happening all over the world for many years. It really is the civilizational challenge that humans have faced since time immemorial, which is that there's always ends up being more credit than money, and it leads to some sort of economic collapse. And so central banking is sort of a government-based solution where all of these sorts of, you know, entities, these banking entities, institutions get shut down, and the government erects its own sort of central bank that can issue credit. And so it does prevent bad acting on the outside, but it enables and incentivizes even bad acting on the inside. And so inevitably, we run into the same sorts of issues over and over and over again, which is that we have this civilizational desire for credit instruments, but we don't have a, a sort of stable and high integrity means of issuing credit. Sorry, it's the problem here that the issuer of the credit does not really have complete incentives to maintain integrity because they could just keep issuing more credit than they actually have or is the issue more so along transparency lines and that people cannot really see how much credit is being issued to others? That's a really good question. I would say emphatically both. <laughs> I think you'd have to be truly a saint to <laughs> to not, you know, sort of act on that opportunity as far as integrity is concerned. But I think on the other end, you know, there is something to be said about a free market for credit instruments and free markets determining the price of the most used asset in the world, you know, a monetary asset like money, you know, the price of it is interest. And when you start to manipulate interest rates, um, you know, or when interest rates start to be adjusted, you're sort of losing this, these free market mechanics. And inevitably, any sort of, I want to say, any sort of meddling with, with the free market for any good at all always has some sort of negative backlash. So I think definitely on both ends, there, there are definitely some issues that are concern integrity, but there are also others, which is just that, you know, if I can just, you know, say this, it's almost like trying to play God, saying like, we know what the free market wants, we know what the free market needs, we can sort of simulate it, it never works out. Right, that makes sense. Well, let's briefly bring in decentralized finance, not to touch in the privacy argument here, but let's talk about interest rates and how they relate to central banking versus decentralized finance. How are interest rate markets 
settled in decentralized finance and how it should be settled. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is really exciting is the transparency, which you alluded to, right? So you can see all of the the capital, you know, like the, for example, in like MakerDAO, you know, you can see all of the, the hard assets of Bitcoin and Ethereum that are deposited, right? So that's a really important part of it. And then you can see the DAI that's issued. Um, so I think that, again, that allows for proper pricing. They are over collateralizing, I can get into more detail, but I mean, I think the point is that one, there's transparency. But two, you know, you have this sort of a new model, which is governance by participation, which is that MakerDAO in particular issues their um, governance token, their native token MKR, which allows people who are participating in the protocol, either by providing capital or by taking out debt and paying interest on it, no matter how you slice it, they're receiving Maker. And they can also buy it in the open market if people are also able to do that. There are secondary markets for Maker. Um, and so with governance tokens and DAOs that are, you know, very active now and very becoming more and more prominent in DeFi, it's the users of the protocol, the individuals that own the network. That is the Web3 paradigm in a nutshell, right? The network is owned by its users, not supposed to be owned by venture capitalists and, and sort of small group of individuals. So people can then A, vote on these interest rates. They can vote on the parameters that govern the protocol, which is so important because again, People who are in the protocol want the protocol to be successful. They don't want it to have liquidity issues at all. Um, they don't want it to have like an exodus. And so all of these sorts of credit systems are competing with one another in a very transparent, decentralized way. And they're all governed by their users. So you have this sort of alignment of incentives within each protocol. And then you have a sort of horizontally speaking, you could say, a really solid, competitive, meritocratic environment, I would say, which promotes high integrity acting. And, and I do want to just elaborate on that briefly because a lot of people would say, look at all these scams that come up. It, it's true. A lot of scams do come up, but they fall apart. And I think there's something to be said there, which is that when you see all these C5 platforms going under, yeah, it's really a shame because a lot of innocent people lost money. But you see that the robust, the truly decentralized platforms that are governed by their communities and that are fully transparent, they're, they're weathering the storm quite well. Yeah, I agree with that. So it seems like the problems with credit markets that we've seen relate to transparency and integrity and how are credit and interest rates decided. And also people issuing more credit than actually is available to issue. And the way decentralized finance is solving these issues is through governance, which helps you decide parameters like the interest rates and also over collateralizing loans to make sure there's always more in the pool than, than is being borrowed. And then just this notion of transparency and you're being able to see how much money or how many tokens are there in the pool and what interest rates are being set, et cetera, right? Would you say that's a good summary? It is, yeah. And, and I would just say on top of that, you know, it doesn't even have to be over collateralized necessarily. The whole point is like the community determines those parameters. And so the community could could vote in favor of extra over collateralization, more safety and lower yields. And then in other, in other environments, the community could vote for, for other parameters. And so that sort of self-governance is, is really what makes this whole space special. Okay, so the problem with credit systems has less to do with credit then and more so to do with governance of the markets and who gets to decide things together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, skin in the game is what it's all about, right? And free markets tend to perform best. Right. Well, let's start data now because in your HCC talk, you mentioned how we've seen an increase in virtual economies ever since the internet blew up. We've seen economies being built around data and data being used as a commodity. And we've obviously seen how that plays out with social media and 
using data to monetize your company, but could you give some context on how data is used as a commodity in this crypto and Web3 ecosystem? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I'll definitely, I mean, I think it was in The Economist, either 2017 or 2018, I keep forgetting, but they wrote that there's that famous article where data is now the world's most valuable economy, it's past oil, you know, and that was like four or five years ago. And as most people know, the crypto space and the, the virtual space are moving quite fast. <laughs> so certainly, uh, I'm happy to speak to it. You know, in, in the same way that Facebook, basically it's a meme at this point that Facebook or Meta is evil and that they monetize your data and sell it for, you know, billion, billion dollar profit margins every year. Uh, in the same way, there are Chainalysis and Nansen being the two biggest. These are these on-chain data analytics companies. They know how to surveil the Ethereum blockchain, these, these fully public blockchains. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with what they do. But, you know, they're operating in a free market capacity, certainly. But they're able to look through sort of all of these, um, like basically through block explorers um, with, with a, uh, some really sophisticated algorithms and, and understand a lot of what's going on in terms of the capital flows within crypto, um, use of DeFi applications um, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and they can aggregate that data and sell it. So they're literally monetizing your money. And it is, again, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not, no one who wants is pro-freedom is calling for them to be, you know, shut down. But there need to be privacy-centric alternatives um, that allow people to protect themselves while they're operating in this sort of decentralized space. Whether it's with NFTs, whether it's with DeFi, whether it's anything else on Ethereum. There just isn't really any privacy-centric alternative. Well, just a quick follow-up there. If you had to generally think about how people measure the value of data, how would you add more concreteness to creating an actual value-based economy out of data? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at the Cambridge Analytica stuff. I mean, it's not hard to understand how an authority would find the data useful, but in a more free market, like in a private enterprise context, marketing agencies obviously have an interest in what you're interested in um, because that makes their services more valuable to would-be advertisers. But I think though, as far as like this whole data economy is concerned, I think the biggest thing and what's, what's really important to consider is that it has to, the, the, the sort of data economy forms with privacy because uh, right now there, there really isn't going to be a market for data because your data is just instantly extracted the instant it's generated um, because it can be copied, you know, costlessly ad infinitum in the virtual space. And so the, the sort of the, the sort of concept of where individuals are selling their search histories, selling their browsing histories, even you know selling a record of their on-chain transactions or anything else, there's certainly massive interest in all of that. And it's very much precedented and it's fully established, whether it's from Google or Facebook or anyone else or any of their high-profile clients that are interested in knowing everything about us, you know, whether you want them to know or not is sort of beyond the scope of that question. But the point is that for an economy to form, the Googles and the Facebooks and in the context of, you know, Web3 and crypto, the chain analysis and the nonsense need to hit a brick wall there where they can't tap your data. That's where it starts. They're not going to be giving out sort of like uh, consolation vouchers like, oh, sorry, we took your data here. <laughs> Have a few doge. That's not going to happen. Um, and so really for that, that market to form and take place, you know, there, there, there has to be this wall that gets put up where users have privacy-centric alternatives that are user-friendly, that aren't too expensive, that aren't difficult to get to use, and they move, make that, make that migration with their capital and usership, with their time and attention. And then at that point, including, by the way, like stuff that's not just crypto native, but could be more like in the realm of Netflix, could be more in the realm of, of LinkedIn, any sort of platform. And that's where these companies, like again, including chain analysis and, and on-chain stuff, that start to ask themselves, well, we have a really good business model here. 
but we're going to need to start approaching these customers individually or providing some market for their data. And they're going to have to determine what it is that would be worth it for them to pay. Um, and I think that's where a market starts to form. There's a famous saying that a negotiation starts at the word no. Um, and I think a data economy starts at the, you know, the first true privacy-centric alternative that goes viral. Wow, that's a great way of putting it. So you can only start to be able to measure the value of data once there's a market farming around it and the market will only form when people have the option to say no to selling the data. And specifically for on-chain data, what we're saying is once you have privacy alternatives, then companies like Chain Analysis would have to start asking users how much they value their data. And that's when you get a demand supply farming between the users and the company, right? Yeah, I mean, those are the bids and asks right there. And I think that economy starts small and same thing, innovators and first movers and some people start to make some decisions and then, you know, picks up steam. And, and it may or may not be for everyone, but certainly it's there. Well, that's a term that you mentioned earlier called rehab authentication. Could you explain how that relates to data and what exactly the term means? Yeah, rehypothecation is a big word that describes a very simple process. <laughs> You'll find a lot of those in banking nomenclature. Basically, rehypothecation is creating more receipts than you have actual assets. You know, So think back to credit and money. It's putting a gold bar in the vault and having a receipt for it. When you make that second receipt for the one gold bar, you are rehypothecating. You are creating a new credit instrument for which there is no hard money underneath it. And so... Again, when you have redemption, when you have people coming back and asking for their gold, uh, that's when you start to run into issues. You have these runs on the bank. The thing is that in the digital space, you know, in the virtual space, inherently it's governed by very different laws, uh, i.e. not those of physics, <laughs> that you have in the physical domain. So when you generate data, which is inherently yours, uh, it can be rehypothecated by simply a copy-paste function. And there's no cost to that. And so most people are used to operating in this environment where everything they generate, everything that's theirs, that they are entitled to because it's an expression of their own selves and their identities, can be copy-pasted away. And so they're used to just being basically looted on a daily basis for, again, in aggregate, everyone together, you know, billions of dollars a year. And so rehypothecation really speaks to this sort of, what I would say is an, is an aphorism at this point, which is that privacy is scarcity in the, in the virtual domain which is to say that there is no scarcity and you can't prevent rehypothecation. You can't prevent your data and the wealth vested in it from being stolen unless it's private. Um, and so you have this kind of just like total free-for-all of people just taking your money in the form of data um, until you have privacy there to prevent that rehypothecation. Okay, that makes sense. And okay, so this covers privacy in general and I think you also covered credit in general. Let's tie both things together and give a setup for private decentralized finance or PriFi. How would you explain what Offshift is to people who haven't heard of PriFi before? Yeah, so so Offshift is what sort of, it's a platform or it's really an ecosystem, you know, that, that has the potential to support a wide array of platforms that live in the crypto space. So you have this, this ecosystem where there's decentralized money in Bitcoin and Monero and other things. You have these form of decentralized credit, which is very exciting, as we sort of discussed with the maker DAOs and, and all sorts of other, uh, you know, DeFi applications. And then you still have this issue where even though your money and credit aren't being rehypothecated, your data still is. And there's a lot of wealth vested in that. And there will be more and more wealth vested in that data. So Offshift kind of closes the loop and creates this rehypothecation proof credit where your data is also not being rehypothecated. It's where you are truly in a state of self-ownership online because you are protecting your privacy in fully decentralized environments. 
So you're combining React Authentication with decentralized finance. Could you just give a walkthrough of what would happen if a user lent, let's say, 10 USDC, $10 to offshift the protocol? What happens to prevent the rehab application of that transaction? Yeah, so the, the rehab application there, like just a simple concept, is someone seeing who owns that those assets. That's really where the reapplication comes in, right? It's seeing your financial transactions. It's knowing it's you and knowing what you do. That's valuable to marketers. It's valuable to everyone, really, knowing things about you. So what you would do is it wouldn't be considered lending per se, but let's just talk about our forthcoming platform, Offshift Anon, which is where you can inject capital, you can put capital into the protocol. So you could take, uh, it will go through our native token, which is called XFT, but you could take anything and Uniswap routers will take care of it under the hood. So say you take some, as you say, $10 and you put it into the protocol. That's going to instantly get burned. Um, so it's going to go through XFT, XFT gets burned. But the idea is that, as you say, you're putting $10 worth, 10 USDC worth into the protocol. It's going to generate a secret deposit node. And the secret deposit is secured with zero knowledge proofs. We can talk about those. But the idea is that on the other side of that deposit transaction, you're going to mint synthetic assets, our Anon assets, ANON, USD, BTC. So these are synthetic assets that you can mint that protect your anonymity. And the reason is because when you want to mint them, so you have this, this secret deposit note and you want to mint them, you can mint them to another address. So you're kind of burning or you're putting capital in from one address and it's coming out in another. And there's a series of, of there's like cryptography or high level mathematics involved which allow you to sort of make this deposit and then make this withdrawal without the deposit and the withdrawal being associated with one another. I think going into more depth than that would be extremely complicated, but I'm happy to do it if necessary. Yeah, that's not going to too much depth, but I am curious. So even if I'm using an anonymous wallet, people can still track my deposit and withdrawal because it's associated with the dollar amount and you can track the transactions of an address. Well, that's a really good question. So I have to give you um, some props there. Um, yeah, so what, what you're really referring to is that, and I just want to make sure I'm highlighting it properly, is that it doesn't matter what happens because if you're putting in, say, $10.50, you just look for an address that suddenly mints $10.50 worth of synthetics. And you're saying you can make that connection very easily. Is that correct? Yes. But the idea, though, is that, so I want to just highlight one concept, which is called an anonymity set, um, which is that if you have, a larger anonymity set or a larger number of users or a larger number of deposits, then it's more difficult to associate any deposit with a particular withdrawal. As you allude to, though, if there are different quantities, then each individual deposit and each individual withdrawal will be actually very easy to identify. So the key is that, and the way the protocol functions, is that everyone must put in their deposits in specific denominations, right? So say everyone has to put in one Ethereum worth. Then at that point, you have a very large anonymity set of identical deposits and identical withdrawals. And so at that stage, it actually is not easy or really possible at all to associate one deposit with a particular withdrawal. Right, that makes sense. Well, two follow-up to one is how are synthetic assets playing a role here? Yeah, so, I mean, I think synthetic assets are really one of the most exciting things that's come out of DeFi in the last couple of years. Um, and a synthetic asset is really the most basic form of a derivative. So anyone who's listening in who's a finance guy, you know, if you talk about options and puts and all of these sort of complex, sophisticated financial instrumentation, a synthetic asset is very, very simple form. It's just its price is pegged to the actual asset. 
There's no betting on it. There's no insurance stuff. It's very, very simple. And the whole idea of Ethereum or what makes Ethereum exciting is that you have all this programmable money. Um, and so you can make assets using oracles. You can create new assets which have specific prices, like an Ethereum, uh, in our case, an Anon F is the same price as an actual F, but the Anon F can be sort of programmed with very specific attributes um, you know, that make it inherently private or allow its user, its holder to be anonymous in transacting. Um, and so you have a lot of these in different spaces that, that sort of have different qualities or that are minted in different ways. Um, and there's a lot of demand for different synthetic assets because it really begins to, um, to, to sort of beg the question of what even makes an asset real in the first place. The reality is that assets are imbued with value by systems, not the converse. Um, and so someone would say that the New York Stock Exchange is valuable because it has all of these really uh, valuable stocks on it. But in the crypto space, it's worth considering that what makes a system of exchange or what makes assets valuable are these systems of exchange where they live. Um, and so if you have like, imagine back in the GameStop fiasco, that whole thing, if you remember that, if people were able to trade synthetic shares of GameStop in some kind of cryptocurrency environment, that would have created a really interesting situation because a lot of demand for GameStop that wasn't allowed to be exercised or expressed in Robinhood and, and other sort of centralized exchanges would have shifted to these synthetic assets. Um, and so synthetic assets are sort of the beginning of a migration of capital to crypto because it allows you to invest in something whose value is the same as its real world counterpart, but which has many more freedoms around the clock transactions, less censorship, and in our case, privacy. Okay, that completely answers my question. Uh, just a small side question, though. If people are to understand more about the protocol, what would be the best resource you'd recommend to people? Um, I mean, I would definitely go to offshift.io. That's O-F-F and then shift, S-H-I-F-T, .io. We have a really, really good website. And, you know, you can go right to our documentation from there on our GitLab, Offshift GitLab, which is just a decentralized version of GitHub. And you could read our Offshift and on our light paper, and you could read the white paper for our ecosystem. So you could dive really deep like that. And then you'd also come find us on Telegram and on Twitter um, so that you, we do have quite a pretty strong community. I have to say Laker community a lot. Um, and so there are a lot of different people you can ask questions to, you could uh, share perspectives with. Um, and so th that's also a really good avenue. Okay, that's super helpful. Thanks for sharing the resources. Before I shift off of, well, that's funny, shift off of, <laughs> before I jump off of, uh, before I pivot off of our conversation on off shift, could you just give a quick summary of the protocol again, because we talked about synthetic assets, we talked about denominations, deposits, withdrawals, we talked about privacy and decentralization. Could you just give the the profile pitch again, but this time, hopefully with listeners having more context and all the components? Yeah, yeah. So Offshift is an ecosystem that lives on Ethereum uh, layer one, which means that it's an ecosystem of applications which allow people to engage decentralized finance in the most decentralized environment in crypto, which is on Ethereum without foregoing their right to privacy. So on our forthcoming platform, our debut platform on Offshift and On, users can shift in their capital and they can mint a series of synthetics. Um, these Anon assets can be pegged to Bitcoin or dollars or Ethereum. And in the process of burning their capital and minting the synthetics, they become dissociated from that capital, meaning that they become anonymous owners of the Anon synthetics that they mint. Um, and so that protects their privacy, you know, while operating on Ethereum. Yeah, that's perfect. Thanks so much. Well, let's talk about your role at Offshift. So agnostic of the protocol and how that works, how would you describe what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, I would say that quite simply as the only 
Um, I'm the only public or only doxxed figure on our team. You know, everyone else is anonymous, which probably doesn't surprise you. But it is important also to have someone that shows face um, and, and steps out and, and speaks and, you know, puts their face and name on, on what we're doing. So I would say quite simply, I manage all the public facing engagements. I do also contribute internally, you know, things like platform tokenomics um, and, and important documentation things. Um, but, you know, I'm out here talking at conferences, doing networking and, and business development. And of course, these interviews as well. I write a lot of op-eds, um, which have been featured in, you know, whether it's Coindesk or Cointelegraph or for not Forbes, NASDAQ or anywhere else in the space, or even a little bit, like I said, but with um, NASDAQ out in TradFi a little bit. I would say, though, you know, to really communicate it simply is that when you have a normal tech company, like you would call it a Web2 company, they are going to raise money and they're not really going to interact with their users or their community until after they launch the product, right? In the beginning, they're only yeah. responding to the, the small network or small group of VCs and, you know, sort of high net worth individuals, the board, so to speak, that's funded them. Crypto is different because it's funded and its stakeholders really, before the platform even goes live, are just, it's open to the full public. And so you have this really unique and, and sort of intimate relationship with your user base and with your community in that you are responding to them as investors as well, and you're responsible to them. So you want to communicate with them and you want to provide transparency and you want to understand their needs before and during the time that you're developing the platform, not just once it goes live. And so you have this very sort of delicate process of development where you are very much responsible to the community um, in a lot of different ways that normal Web2 tech companies would not have to deal with. And so it's important to have someone that can do that appropriately and that understands the space and, and a lot of the people that are involved in it. Well, when you're explaining the progress that you made on the protocol as you're developing it, do you feel that you have to make big promises on the roadmap about what's coming up to the users because there is this internal pressure that you have to get a product out or do you feel that's not the case? That's a really good question because it's extremely relevant to some of the challenges that we faced. At this stage, we're just committed to, as we sort of say, like, you know, as a, you know, project providing privacy centric platforms, we, we do value individual privacy for, you know, most of the people on our team, anonymity for them. But insofar as we're developing something for public use, that will be open to the full public. We want to provide maximum transparency into the development process. So we do have a roadmap to testnet, which we're slated to launch in October our testnet for Offshift and on, but we also provide bi-weekly dev updates. And we also do monthly AMAs where I come on the video live and answer questions that the community has submitted. And I think, you know, not so much, I think as far as promises, that's a really good question to address, which is that with promises, it's definitely great to make promises, but you have to make sure that everything you're promising is 100% true. Um, and there's no harm in saying we can't make an announcement yet because we don't fully know what we're going to announce. And so I think there's definitely a, a time and place to reserve some space for yourself as a project and to say, we want to make an announcement, but what's more important is being fully accurate in that announcement. And so we're going to take a little bit of time here to collect ourselves. But that aside, I do think having a roadmap, we do have concrete dates and we do have concrete milestones. And that shows the community that we do have a lot of structure with our vision. And that's a really important piece to gaining and maintaining trust. Mm -hmm. Is there a date when the team plans to become public or is the team always going to be anonymized? Oof, good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to say there are a lot of really sharp and, and brilliant people involved and it's an honor to be able to speak on their behalf. I don't think that they will want to dox themselves. However, 
things change really fast in the space. And so you just never know. So that door is not, I would say, fully closed, but I would suspect that won't happen. That makes sense. A quick question that I had on content and branding, because we were talking about it earlier. When you're talking about Offshift and Pryfi, I'm sure that some non-technical audiences would find it difficult to understand components that we talked about, like synthetic assets. How do you explain these steps to people who are not familiar with the technical side of what you're doing at Offshift? It's a, it's, it's a very uh, fine line to walk there. And, and you bring up a good point. Communicating, I mean, when you say the technical points, it's kind of like fintech just is finance at this point. You can't say, oh, I don't want to know about the technical. Finance is so technical at this point. Uh, it is absolutely unbelievable how much finance and tech have sort of gotten uh, interwoven at this point. So I just think fintech just is finance <laughs> in 2022. Um, and so, you know, what you say, what, what you speak to is that, yeah, for anyone to really understand finances, it is as difficult, but to understand you know, the technical side is also extremely difficult. And I think, you know, what makes it even more difficult on top of that is that in Web3 or crypto, you have this inherently digitally native space, which makes it even more difficult because most people are, there's nothing they can put their hands on. There's nothing tangible. So unless you have very, very sophisticated, intellectually oriented people sharing a conversation, it's very difficult to pick up on these concepts. And so I think whether you're distilling it, like we have, for example, Offshift Academy on YouTube, which is where we have these sort of five minutes videos that distill everything into sort of bite-sized content and we employ visuals and stuff so that in the video so that people can sort of grasp it. That's definitely part of it, high quality content. But I think more importantly is you have to employ metaphors constantly. And if you do not, I think you lose a large amount of your audience. One of the best examples is with ZK Proofs. Um, I recently did a fireside chat. It was in June with Edward Snowden. Uh, it was just 60 minutes. I recommend anyone, you know, sort of looking up Offshift Snowden on YouTube. You'll find it's quite, uh, quite a, you know, a great deep dive into the space. Um, and, you know, he, he describes ZK Proofs very eloquently, which is that a ZK Proof is essentially validifying or proving that some information is true without exposing the contents of the information, right? And so as, it's nice because zero knowledge really, the, the name lends itself to what the technology actually does. Uh, which you don't find a lot of in this space. You know, you have all sorts of crazy names that don't really reflect what the platform is. Zero knowledge proofs are very intuitive in that sense. You need to say that something is true without saying what it is. And so obviously that lends itself to privacy-centric solutions and ZK proofs really are the secret sauce. And so what a ZK proof is or does is difficult to explain without explaining a lot of different technical components. Edward Snowden explained it like this. If you are colorblind and you have two balls and you can't tell if they're the same color or different colors, right? You're going to have a situation where you, you can figure out by asking other people. And then that's even a simplified explanation of his explanation. But essentially, if you have these two balls and you ask a bunch of people and get some sort of consensus amongst people, you show one ball and then you show the second and you say, did I show you the same ball or did I show you two different balls? Over time, you get a, a pretty strong, like you have some data to work with. Even as the person, you yourself look at the balls all day. You can't tell if they're the same or not. In other words, you can't do the proof yourself. But by exposing them to other people in various ways, you can get a good consensus for people that aren't colorblind what their perspectives on the data are. And then you can therefore have this sort of proof. It's called, you know, you have zero knowledge, but you can use other people's knowledge to sort of get an idea of what the truth actually is. Okay. Well, that's I completely forgot what we're talking about, but... I believe we were talking about 
explaining terms with metaphors, right? Do you ever feel the urge to deviate from metaphors to be as technically accurate as possible for your community? Wow, that's a really good question. You're really grilling me on this. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, the first thing I'll say is that in this space, one size fits all is a terrible approach to contents. And even if you are an influencer or you are a media producer such as yourself, if you're just producing one set of content, you need to find your niche. Um, and I think, you know, Web3 for Gen Z is a very, very niche, right? But I, I think if you're a cryptocurrency project, one size fits all is not the right approach at all. So that's why we have Offshift Academy, which is the basic bite-sized pieces of information, which may employ visual media, which may employ some metaphors, and, and which is maybe a bit more simplistic. And then, of course, we do have our technical documentation on GitLab, which is, you know, you're not going to see a lot of pictures. You're going to see all the technical components. Um, you're going to see a lot more sophisticated language. And as you say, you know, you're not going to get anything lost in translation by making a lot of um, sort of, I guess you could say, like generalizations. But yeah, I mean, that to me is the best solution is, is having these different sort of avenues for content creation, which is that, you know, you have your on-site blog, you have your, you know, your interviews and your conference presentations, and you also have like a good mix of, you know, whether it's YouTube content, technical docs, announcements and this sort of thing, because you are right that you are compromising when you employ metaphors. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect analogy. But I think because of the nascent stage that we're at in crypto, and we are at a, quite a nascent stage, is that you have a lot of people coming into the space for the first time, or more importantly, people that are thinking about coming into the space for the first time. And you need to get the fish hook out there. And if you put something unpalatable on the fish hook, <laughs> like an accurate description, right. like if you put like, uh, what's his name? Um, he developed, uh, oh man, it escaped me. But like the 1985 document, uh, Sylvie McCauley, if you read that document that which introduced ZK Proofs for the first time, you're not going to get many people. But I have quoted that document. In the document, he writes that the privacy of some information is what gives us an advantage over our adversaries. And I think that quote or that line gets people like, wow, that's actually quite poetic. And people can understand that. And I think you have to give people a little bit of a runway to enter the space. If you overwhelm them with that, you lose them. Um, and so, I mean, you're right, though, it, it's definitely challenging to sort of walk the line between making an inaccurate analogy and delivering too much for people to handle. Well, one final question for you before we wrap it up is what would be your advice that you would give to people wanting to learn more or wanting to break into the space, but also more broadly, anyone interested in privacy and Web3 and DeFi? Yes. Uh, as someone who broke into the space, I definitely have some advice that I would like to give. I think, you know, it's good to get into Web3 or crypto before Web3 or crypto gets into your life. I see it as an infrastructural technology and an advancement, sort of the next iteration of the internet. You know, so if you go rewind 20 years and you say, oh, I'm going to continue doing my work, but I'm not going to get involved in the internet stuff. You're going to find that the internet's going to get caught up in your work and you're not going to be up to speed. So it's sort of this kind of coming transition that I think the, the benefits to be getting familiar with it, even if you can't perceive them in the early stages, the benefits of educating yourself, of getting involved, whether it's going to conferences, whether it's watching content online, whether it's going to meetups, if you find them, I think it is, you know, it really extends far beyond what you can even perceive in the early stages. And so I strongly recommend, you know, even if you don't see any sort of benefit, any immediate benefit right away, 
to just sort of get yourself familiarized with these concepts and terms. I think getting educated about it is so helpful and it will pay massive, massive dividends down the line. And so it is early. And especially if you're in Gen Z, if you are that young, I mean, what do you think the world's going to be like when you're even 30 or 40? You know, at that stage, you still have a lot of your life ahead of you. I'm 29 just for context. And so I think it's really something to sort of approach as sort of an inevitability in some ways. I don't say that in a dark or, or you know, sort of threatening way to anyone. But if you sort of see again, so if you can become sort of familiar with that and get comfortable with that, you will have many more opportunities down the line. So if anyone wants to get into Web3 before Web3 gets into their life, what are the most helpful one or two resources you'd find them towards? Well, I mean, I would definitely stay up to tune on Web3 for Gen Z as much as possible. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the places, if I could give a couple of resources in particular, like what, what I would do, and this, this sounds very simplistic, but it's not. I would start exploring, and I really mean this, I would start exploring transacting in cryptocurrency. It's something you will not understand fully or really perceive the benefits until, even if it's with a friend, if you could pay them back in Ethereum or if you could just try to trade because inherent, in one way or another, your capital gets involved. This is the internet of wealth, the internet of value, the internet of money. So you have to be very careful. It's not just like exploring a cool tech product. There is money involved. Right. But people, people who often say like, what's the benefit of cryptocurrency? It's like, well, you sort of forget that for most people, it's just an investment. But as someone active in the space, you know, you have um, a graphic designer who lives halfway across the world and they want you to pay them for the work. And it's like 8 p.m. on a Saturday and you can just do it instantly and it costs nothing. And you're like, wow, this actually is quite a powerful technology. And that's just a very simplistic example. But then, you know, you end up having some capital there. You're like, I really should load this up just in case. And then you're like, well, I could, I might as well have this grow. And then you start to explore DeFi and things like this. <laughs> it's very natural. Um, and so that's like, you know, it really answers your question as directly as possible, which what you said was, how can you get into Web3 before Web3 gets to you? It's start transacting in these assets with a friend or in some way before they get pushed into your life. Um, and this way you'll be very well prepared. You'll have made a couple of mistakes with a very small amount of money and you'll understand how the systems work and you'll be able to see how they benefit you. Um, so that to me is the most important thing. If you have some capital, if you have some skin in the game, you'll start to explore some things. Um, and wherever that takes you is, you know, your own adventure to have. That, that's super helpful advice. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the questions I had for you, Alex. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. Oh, my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate if you could take out a second and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next week with another guest.